So what is the purpose of Daniel? Why is this book being written? What is Daniel hoping to accomplish? The purpose of the book of Daniel is to demonstrate the sovereignty of Yahweh over the affairs of humanity and the nations through history and into the future. The whole main purpose of why Daniel is being written is to demonstrate Yahweh's sovereignty over the affairs of humans and all nations and their current present historical context and into all the future lives of those people in those nations. We see this in two ways. In Daniel chapters 1 through 6, these are all the stories of Daniel living under the Babylonians and the Medes and the Persians. And here we see God constantly demonstrating the fact that he is sovereign and control of even the most pagan men and the most pagan empires, the most powerful empires the world has ever seen. And he's able to bend them to his will. And he's intimately involved in the lives of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, taking care of them despite the pagan oppression of these kings. These stories woven together, one after one, constantly demonstrate that no matter how powerful these empires are and how much they have steamrolled over the world as a juggernaut, that they are nothing in the hands of Yahweh who controls all history and all kings. He lifts them up in the power and brings them down again whenever he wants, just as the prophets have said over and over and over again. But it also shows that this God is not some deistic, distant God who's just making sure things work out, but he's intimately involved in the lives of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and go, aiding them and helping them so that they are able to influence the culture around them and not just influence, but change it drastically to reflect God's character and his nature. And so we see that. Then when we get to chapter 7 through 12, these are the futuristic events. This is the empire that is yet to come. The Medes, the Persians, the Greeks, and a really nasty boy by the name of Antiochus IV, which we will hear a lot about. And what God is showing is that he already knows all these things are going to happen. And at the end of all these empires, this son of man figure comes, or the rock in the dream, and destroys all these empires. And what he's showing is, if I have demonstrated that I'm sovereign over history through the stories of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, then you can trust that I'm also sovereign over your future and all the things that are yet to come. And so these two parts of this book demonstrate that God is sovereign and intimately involved in directing the affairs of humanity, the providence of God, then, now, and always to come. Holy, holy, holy is he who was and is and is to come. And that's what this book is primarily interested in demonstrating. Now, what makes this book unique, because many, many other books have already demonstrated that throughout the Bible, but all those books were set within the context of the promised land. They were set either with the Jewish people and God guiding them through the wilderness, or they were set with God over the Jewish people in the promised land. And one could easily conclude, after reading all these books of the Bible, well, yeah, God is sovereign over the, his own nation. Because in the ancient mindset, the gods could only control their own nation. And they were only sovereign over the creative elements in their own territory. Just like Vladimir Putin can only have authority and control in Russia, and Trump only has authority and control here. 
And so in the pagan mindset, that's the way they view the gods and the nations. And if my god was able to conquer your god, because the Babylonians coming in and conquering Israel, they would have assumed that means that my god Marduk, the god of the Babylonians, was far superior than Yahweh, because if Yahweh was stronger than Marduk, he would have never allowed Marduk's armies to come in and conquer Israel, then your God is obviously pathetic and weak, and we are dominant. Yet what God is showing is, this is unique, because this is the first time where we see God, the setting is God over the pagan nations, in the pagan nations, and their politics, their economy, and their culture. And yet God is still bending it to his will and changing people at will. And what God is saying is, I am not bound by geography, regions, time, cultures, ethnicities. I am the God of all people. And this is what God said to Israel, though the whole world belongs to me, you will be my special people. So that you can go to the world and make them a part of my special people. And this is what God is showing. It doesn't matter where we are, I am still the same God. And I'm still in control. And this is the main purpose of the book of Daniel, is showing that. Especially for us today, this is even more relevant because we are so far away from the promised land and so far away ethnically from the Jewish people as descendants. And we are in a completely time period under a completely different nation. And the question is, is God sovereign? And Daniel is saying, yes, absolutely so. This is what we're going to see. And the nations that he's going to go through, as we see these visions and dreams, he's not just saying these are the only nations I'm sovereign over, but he, they become an example or a model or a typology of if that's true here, then that's true of all nations to come. And when we get to Zechariah, you're going to see that too. Zechariah kind of has this idea that if it's true of Babylon and Medes and the Persians and the Greeks, then it's true of the Romans and then the Mongols and the Ottoman Empire, and the British Empire, and the American Empire, the United Nations, the, the um, Islamic Empire, whatever empire you want to call it, it's true of all of us. And that cycle just keeps going on and on and on and on. And so it's very important that you understand this. The other thing that he's trying to communicate here is that he has not abandoned his people. Like I already mentioned, if your God allowed you to be defeated, sacked, and carried off, and no longer in a land, and now pagans are controlling you, it's very easy to wonder, has God abandoned us? And even our own lives, when loved ones die, or maybe in the middle of COVID-19, all this kind of stuff, probably people have asked that question a lot, and maybe even more so now, as things seem hopeless to a lot of people as we're going through this. And what it's saying is that God has not abandoned them. He is the God who raises people up into power when he wants, and he brings them down when he wants. He demonstrates this through this book. Joyce Baldwin, as a commentator, she said this, The predominant message is that God's people will experience suffering and be threatened with extinction, but that will not be the end of the story, because their God is the living and all-powerful God who will get glory by vindicating his name and who will save them. This is the message of Daniel. God made a promise he'll return to the land. And that looks very hopeless for Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego right now. Yet when God involves himself in their lives, they'll be reminded that promise will come true. And right now we're promised a second coming of Jesus Christ. And we wonder, it's been a long time. It looks kind of hopeless. Yet as we see testimony after testimony after testimony from the Bible 
and in the people in the church that we share lives with and in our own lives of God at work, those become the things that we hold on to that the promises of God will be fulfilled. And this is what the book of Daniel is trying to emphasize. And like I said, that message is not new to the Bible, but the circumstances that that message is being spoken into is new to the Bible because we're in a different nation now with no real sign that God is sitting in the temple controlling everything. Not that he isn't, it just doesn't seem like it. Does that make sense? And that's what you need to hold on to as we go through the book of Daniel. Remember, I'm giving you the purpose and the themes so that those will rattle around in your head as we go through story after story after story. And you can see that flow, that thread that is going through. Now, there are many themes in the book of Daniel, but there are three predominant themes. And the first theme is the sovereignty of Yahweh over all. Now, I'm not going to unpack that a lot because I kind of already did. That one just like is the purpose. So we're going to see the fact that Yahweh is in control of all things and he's ruling over all people and that all people will answer to him. And there is a real sense when the Bible, the Second Testament says that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Daniel is probably the best picture of that. When we see Nebuchadnezzar, ultimately by chapter 4, he is kneeling and confessing that Yahweh is God. And that is, I think, the most powerful message. Nebuchadnezzar was like the biggest pagan despot king who just literally had no care for anyone. Yet I truly believe that he became a believer and he is in heaven and he is a part of the body of Christ this day. And so that's what we see with this book. The second thing that we see going through this is grace of Yahweh for all. And this is very important because a lot of times the Jews begin to think, all, we're the chosen people. And God's grace and blessings are for us and us alone. And you pagan dogs out there, you're not a part of the people. And they completely forgot the so that you can be a blessing to the world. And you don't, you see that theme being, that idea, that wrong thinking being refuted constantly through the Bible when people like Ruth the Moabite is brought in and Tamar the Canaanite is brought in and Ittite the Gittite is brought in and Uriah the Hittite is brought in and Arana the Jebusite. And you see all these stories throughout the Bible where these foreigners are brought in. And what's very interesting is if you've been following with me in this as we've been going through the Bible is they often seem to have greater faith than the Israelites themselves do. And they seem to have a better idea of who God is than the Israelites themselves. And God puts those stories in there subtly to refute this idea that you're not special, Israel. In fact, when he gets to the prophets, he says, God did not choose you because you were special. In fact, he chose you because you were the most insignificant people in the entire world. And he wanted to show what he could do with you in order to bring you to the world and bring the world into you. And then when we get to Ezra and Nehemiah, they kind of fall in this mindset too that like, it's just us. And, and God, we don't want you foreigners to come and help us. And we don't want the foreigners to be a part of us because you foreigners like made our life a living hell for the last 70 years. And that's all the more reason. And then when we get to the Gospels, this idea has just been entrenched in their thinking incredibly deep. Where the Pharisees are teaching all the people that Israelites are the only people. 
And so much so that the Pharisees would pray every day, thank God that I'm not a uh, a Gentile, a woman, or a dog. And that's the way they viewed their specialness. And they even said that there's no room for anybody outside the nation to come in and that we're the only chosen people. And this is why when Jesus says, just like in the days of Elijah, that not one of the Israelites accepted him or his teaching or turned to God, yet Elijah went to the widow of Zeraphim, the Phoenician, and they came to God, so it will be today with me as I bring the gospel. And he said that in Nazareth, and they hated that message so much, they tried to kill him by throwing him off the cliff. So that shows you their, their nationalistic specialness is so entrenched in their head that they're willing to kill one of their own family members from Nazareth when he says, I'm going to the Gentiles and they'll accept me more than you do. And we see that theme over and over and over again. And so what God, he's directly going against that and this theme that you see, that grace for all, that God constantly is coming to Nebuchadnezzar over and over again through dreams and and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and testifying, I want you a part of the kingdom of God too. And we see this with Darius the Mede and even Belshazzar, who he completely rejects the message, but the message was still offered to him. And then Cyrus II is open to that message. And we see this over and over again, that God, if and here's what's interesting. Here's a little minor side note. If Israel refused to be a blessing to the world and became elitist and nationalistic in their way of thinking, then one of the things that God did by judging them for their sins was not only did he take them out of the promised land as a judgment for their idolatry, but he basically said, if you won't go to the world, then I'm going to take you to the world. And he forces them into exile as a judgment and a kick in the rear end to be the gospel to the nations. And so in that sense, they are showing the grace of God to the nations. And we see the same thing. That's what the whole book of Acts is. If you follow the outline of Acts, God says in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, I want you to go out and be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, not Israel, and to the ends of the world, not Israel. And that none of the apostles obey him. They stay in Jerusalem the entire time. So what does God do? In chapter 7, he ups the persecution. And the persecution makes them flee for their lives. And what do they do? They flee Judea and go to the ends of the world and start sharing the gospel. And God's saying, if you won't go, I will send you. You also see this Tower of Babel. He told them to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And they said, we're going to come together and build a tower to make our name great. And God says, fine, I will scatter you across the world. Every time that they refuse to go to the world, he always brings some kind of a kick in the butt as judgment as well as a get out there and do it kind of a sense. And that's what we see. Now, I'm not saying that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego specifically were not doing that, but they just become the example of people doing that now that they are in exile. This is the theme that God has grace for all nations, and that was his intentional goal. And you, if you were here for the pre-exilic prophets message, that was a theme we heard over and over and over again, where God promised a day is coming where God will reestablish his throne on his holy mountain, Zion, in Jerusalem. And he will open that mountain, that temple, to all the nations. And they will all flood in. That's the whole parable of the rich man's banquet. When Jesus says, the kingdom of God is like a rich man who went to, and in the story, he goes to the wealthy and the noble and all that kind of stuff, and everybody knows he's talking about the Jews. 
and he invites them, and they're like, well, I got this other party to go to, or I'm too busy, or I've got to do this, and they don't go. So who does Jesus go to? He goes to the poorer, the foreigners, the outcasts, the lame, and he invites them in, and they flood in. And then when the Jewish people are like, we want in, it's too late. And so the idea there is, if you won't do it, Israel, I will do it, and I'll find somebody to go out. And those are the people that I also want to be a part of it. And so this is an important theme that we see through the book of Daniel. The other theme, the third theme, the final theme, is the people of Yahweh can influence the culture. Now this one is going to really speak to us. I mean, right now I feel like, politically speaking, we have no influence at all on how things are happening in our country. And things just seem to go a good direction that our leaders want, regardless of what anybody views. And I, I don't care what your view is on, like, COVID-19 and wearing masks and that kind of stuff. It is obvious that it feels like we're out of control as a people and where we're going as a nation. And what God is, and, and, and whatever you feel now in America is nothing compared to what you would feel under the rule of a dictator who has literally absolute power. And there is no constitution. And there is no voting. And there is no writing or congressman. And yet Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are going to powerfully influence the culture that they live in even as lesser Semitic Jewish people in the eyes of the pagans. And so if they can, we can as believers. And so we see this theme. The story of Daniel and his friends is not a story of people who compromise with the culture. They did not go into the culture and compromise and become like it. They did not start entertaining themselves in the same way that the culture did, and they did not divide into the same worldview thinking as the culture. And so you do not see that. However, you also do not see a group of people who also stood outside the culture and yelled and screamed at it for being evil and under God's judgment and bashing them and calling them idiots. And of course, this is happening because God's judging you. And why don't you know better? You don't see that. Never, ever do you see these four men protesting, rebuking, screaming, or condemning anyone. Nor do you see them compromising and becoming like the culture. They seek a middle path. And they choose to be of the culture, but not in it. And they choose to join the people of the culture, but not compromise their standards. And that's what we see. So they enter the culture, and they had government jobs. Okay, This is one of the, one of the questions that my students ask me a lot, is like, Mr. Bacher, how do you feel about like maybe working for a pagan corporation that's only about making money or that they make a profit off of hurting other people and that kind of stuff? Now, granted, there's certain jobs that maybe you shouldn't be a part of, like you shouldn't join a strip club and be there for Jesus. Um, but that's kind of obvious. But like, what about like evil corporations that are like poisoning the environment and all that kind of stuff or making money or, or they're using child slavery to make parts and that kind of stuff? And my answer to that is, why not? For two reasons. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had government jobs and a government that was way more pagan and way more oppressive than any government or corporation in America has ever been. Okay, if you really understand these empires, these empires were messed up. And the way that they practiced sexually, the way that they treated people and oppressed them, and the callousness for all human life, and the way that they absolutely had power. And yes, there's examples of that in our culture, but not in a universal kind of a sense that there was back then. 
And so yet, Daniel had a government job with this. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar II was the guy who just massacred his entire people. And yet, Daniel's now working for him. Can you imagine that? Like, this is like a Jewish person working for a Nazi who was running the concentration camps. Not literally like that, but something like that, an idea. And Daniel's working for him. And not only does he work for him, he turns and he shares God with him. And so they had government jobs. They were in a pagan culture. And they befriended these leaders. And so not only is it possible to be in God's will and work for these pagan corporations or governments, but that's exactly where God wants you to be. Now, do you have to put up extra precautions to not be influenced by that kingdom? Yes. You better make sure if you're working in those corporate worlds or in those governments that you have some body of believers that surround you who are willing to get in your face and call you out and that kind of stuff. But notice that Daniel's not alone. He has three other friends. And they, they live. And when Daniel's faced with trials, what does he immediately do? He goes to his friends and he says, we need to pray. And there's a community within it. You're not all, you're, now, I strongly recommend to not be alone in some pegging government or pegging um, corporation. To surround yourself with believers, definitely. But that does not mean that we hold the cross up and stay away from them. Because it's exactly what we've called to be and we're to be. And if we're not there, then how in the world are they to know? And how in the world can they change? And so they entered in the culture. They befriended the people despite their immorality, and they became friends. Yet, they did not condone or join the culture. They're perfect examples of saying, I'm not going to eat that meat and defile myself, but at the same time, I'm not going to rebuke you and criticize you and condemn you for being a part of this culture. One of the things I have never forgotten is one of my mentors told me a long time ago, when you see like your next door neighbor who seems like he's worshiping his car all the time because he's pouring tons of money into it and he's waxing it all the time and that kind of stuff where they, they're just obsessed with they're having affairs and that kind of stuff here and there and there and there and that kind of stuff or they're, they're smoking all the time or, or they have an alcohol addiction or, or they just it's all about entertainment and, and, and he says and you're tempted to condemn them or stay away from me he says what do you expect from people who do not have the spirit of God? And the only way that they know is if you step in their life and love them. If they do not have the Spirit of God, they don't know another path. And if you're not entering into their life, then they won't see the Spirit of God and they won't see the alternate path. We're not called to go to the world and rebuke them and condemn them. We're called to go to the world and to love them and share with them. The rebuke actually is more for fellow believers who refuse to act like the Spirit of God, not for the non-believers. And if you see that throughout the Bible, Christ had greater rebukes for his own people who should have known better and had no rebuke for the people who did not know better. And so this is what we see Daniel doing. There's neither rebuke nor condoning the culture. There's a person who's willing to stay committed to God at the same time walk side by side with the people in the culture. And this is a powerful message for us because learning about the culture and using it is not the same thing as assimilating into it. You can study your culture and be aware of it and know everything that's going on, but not assimilate into it. And knowing about the culture then aids you in influencing the culture. And so I strongly recommend be a student of the culture that we live in so that you can use that knowledge to influence the culture, but not to become a part of it. 
And so when confronted with corruption, misunderstanding, even hostility of the culture, they made it clear that they would remain loyal to Yahweh while doing this. However, they treated the people around them with love. And we're going to see that specifically in the first chapter. We're going to see a perfect example right off the bat of a Daniel who refuses to compromise but still treats the people around him with love and respect. Yahweh therefore used them. It's hard for God to use somebody who's constantly screaming hatred and rebuke and condemnation at the culture and criticizing them. It's hard for God to use somebody who's exactly like the culture and there's nothing unique about them that the culture can look at and say, wow, there's something different than I'm attracted to. It is the man who stands in the culture and accepts them as people but refuses to act and think like them yet treats them with respect and love despite that behavior that God then uses in a powerful way to change them. Not all the time. Nebuchadnezzar II is a great example of a man who's changed by Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Yet Belshazzar is a great example of a man who saw the same example through Daniel and yet makes no change. So Daniel is not promising that you will influence and change the culture every single time. But it is promising that God will be with you and use you and a part of the culture at least will respond in some kind of way. Even if it takes years. There's a really famous speaker by the name of D.A. Carson. And if you come to our church, you've heard our pastors reference him a long time. But this, he's amazing. He talks about his dad, that he's from um, Quebec, Canada. It's a predominantly French culture there. He talked about his dad was a missionary. Well, they were, they're, they're, they're Canadians. But he was like a pastor slash missionary in his own Canadian culture. And when he was growing up as a child under his dad, D.A. Carson's like in his 60s, 70s now. So growing up under his father would have been more like in the, the, 40, the 30, 40s and 50s and that kind of stuff. And during that time period, the culture that his father was ministering into, he was faithful to preach and teach and lead and really saw no growth. His church had only about 20 people in all the childhood for over 30 years. That they just had about 20 or 30 people in their church, and his father saw no revival or no people really come in, but yet he was faithful and many times felt like he wanted to give up or I'm not being used. And then somewhere about 30 years later, there was a huge revival in Quebec, Canada, and lots of people started flooding in. And, these, and, and all that work that he had put into finally was being used by God. Not that it was in those 30 years, but the, seed, the flowering, the robust garden finally started flourishing. And, that, and, he, and, and his faithfulness was rewarded. It took him a long time to see it, but it was finally rewarded. Now, D.A. Carson also says that at that time, a whole bunch of missionaries from other countries like, started flooding in, and they started kind of taking over ministries and saying, this is how we're going to do it. And they started taking credit for it. And unfortunately, as a result of that, his father kind of got pushed to the side as a old has-been. And they never acknowledged that he was the one who like laid the ground for this revival. So yet despite that, he never condemned, criticized, or complained anybody. He just continued to be faithful to God. And, that, and that's what you see with Daniel. He's not always successful with everybody he encounters. And there's many, 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 many other people he would have encountered as an ambassador in the the Babylonian Empire that are not told in these pages that could have been positive or negative. 
All we're given is a few examples. And the idea is that these few examples give you an idea of what all the other stories would have been like similar. And so this is the faithfulness of Daniel. What's very powerful is that God also did not need Daniel to be the judging, condemning voice to rebuke the culture. Because what's a fascinating read in the story is that when people refuse to respond to Daniel, Shirach, Meshach, and Abednego, and then come to Yahweh and the knowledge and relationship of him, Yahweh does not command Daniel to condemn them, rebuke them, judge them in any kind of way. He usually just allows them to become a victim of their own culture. He allows their own pagan culture to swallow them up through natural consequences. And we know this. God often, most of the time, does not judge us or condemn us by actively stepping your life and smacking you down on the ground. He most of the time just gives us over into our own desires. And this is what Romans says. Because they pursued sexual morality, he just gave them exactly what they wanted. And because that is not beneficial for your life, sexual immorality will eventually destroy you, given enough time. And God often just allows you to destroy your own life through your own consequences. Not that he wants that, but we have free choice. And if we constantly oppose them, we will be swallowed up. And we know this. We know people who constantly pursue certain lifestyles of anger or slander or alcohol or sexual practices or, or a desire for fame and entertainment. Eventually that world swallows them up and they lose everything as a result of it in some kind of way. And, and the, America's full of those stories. And so we see this with Belshazzar. He refused to respond to God, and he said, I'm better than that, and I'm great, and nothing will ever happen to me. And then his own pride and arrogance swallowed him up with the Cyrus II taking him over. The satraps were like, we are going to build a pit, or we're going to have a pit, and we want to throw Daniel into it for praying. And then they end up being the ones swallowed by the pit. We even see this in the book of Esther. Haman is hung on the very gallows that he built for somebody else. And God just allows usually the culture to swallow them up. We don't need to condemn them and rebuke them. We just need to share with them the love of God and say that there is a better way. Not that your way is horrible and evil and wrong. And I'm not saying there's never a time to say that's not healthy, that's not godly, that's not loving. But there's never a place to condemn them and smash them to the ground and shame them for that. There's we come in and we just say, this is not healthy and I love you and I'm going to warn you but I love you and I'm going to stay by your side. And they choose to ignore you, their own lifestyle will swallow them. And that is what's sad. That's why Christ says, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Because it breaks his heart, even though he allows it. And so this is the theme that we see here of the ability to influence the culture. And we're going to see that as we go through. The last thing we're going to talk about is structure. What is the structure of the book? I've already mentioned there are two congruent structures. Two structures that seem to be going side by side through this book. And the first structure we see is there's two divisions, Daniel 1 through 6, which are the stories of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the culture, but not of it. And then the other division is 7 through 12, which are the visions of the things yet to come. And these are the, this is the main structure. And my outline follows that structure. So Roman numeral 1 is the first six chapters. And Roman numeral 2 is the 7 through 12 chapters. And so these chapters show that division 
of history, narrative historical stories. And um, the second half is prophetic visions. There's another structure, though, and this one you're not going to see in your English Bibles, but it's a structure of Aramaic and Hebrew. Part of Daniel is written in Aramaic, and the other part is written in Hebrew. Now, Hebrew, obviously, we know is the language of the Jews and has been for a long time. But Aramaic was the, the business language or the language of trade or the political language of the Persian Empire. It's the equivalent of saying that most countries around the world, if you live in the business world or in government, you do speak English. English is the language of the business political world. And anybody who is in government or in high, powerful business know English. Yet, they also know their own cultural language. And so when they're with their people and their culture, they're probably speaking Mandarin or, or French or whatever language. But when they're interacting with the world, that's the language is English. Now, that's beginning to change as America's influence is dwindling, dwindling. But that's how it's been for a long time. And so the same thing as Aramaic. Okay, Farsi was the language of the Persians, basically, and Hebrew was the language of the Jews, but Aramaic was a language that kind of came about that was a business language or political world, an empire language. And it is very similar to Hebrew. If you have a mastery of Hebrew, picking up Aramaic is very simple. The Jews live in Israel, which is about the size of Rhode Island, with a population that's about the fifth of Rhode Island's population. And so in the grand scheme of world empires, the Jews are like culturally, worldly, insignificant. That small of a country with that small of a population has no influence in the world going out to it. Now, one of the things, now, on a side note, I did tell you they were supposed to be a blessing in the world. The, the beauty of where God put Israel, though, is they were the center of all trade. All trade from the through the Mediterranean from west to east and vice versa, and all Mediterranean from Egypt in the south and going up into China and vice versa, all went through Israel. So the beauty is that you know, Israel had zero influence as a teeny dinky little people on the grand scheme of politics and government and world empires in the world. They'd had a huge influence on all the traders that were coming through and would hopefully see the blessings of God in Israel that was unique to all the other nations. And they would say, what is different about you? And they would say, let me tell you about our God. And then they would take that message of the God to the world and influence at the grassroots level. So in a top down, they're too small to have an influence. But from a bottom up, they had incredible impact being the center of all trade as traders came through, and traders were like Fox and CNN of the day. They were the one that carried the news and all that kind of stuff. So in that sense, that was very powerful. So that means that because they're not going out in the world, there's no real reason to translate the Bible into different languages. The Bible's always been Hebrew and always narrowly for only a certain group of people to read. But for the first time ever, we're seeing the Bible, a little part of Daniel, being written in Aramaic, which was the language of the entire known world at that time period, on at least this side of the Mediterranean. And then eventually, by the 200s, we're going to see the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation, come along, which is going to be a highly, one of the most influential translations ever in the history of mankind. And so this is the beginning of that spread to the nations, which 
also just for there's this point that God is showing his sovereignty and influence even the pagan nations by the fact that part of the Bible is now going to be written in the language of the world, so to speak. And so this division, as you can see in the opening chapters, Daniel 1.1 through 2.4a, and the closing chapters of Daniel 8.12, so the first chapter basically, chapter 1 through 2.4a, and then the last chapters, 8 through 12, are written in, um, are written in Hebrew. So they book in. And then the middle chapters of 2.4b through 7.28, so basically chapters 2 through 7, are written in Aramaic. And so they are book in by Hebrew, and the middle is Aramaic. Now, the reason for this difference in language is not exactly clear. Lots of scholars have different ideas and different opinions of how that works. But some have suggested, and probably the best argument yet, is that the sections that are in Aramaic pertain more to the pagans. So in chapter 1, it's, the main focus is on Daniel as a Hebrew, not defiling himself. So that seems to be written in Hebrew. Yet when we get to chapter 2, the main focus is Nebuchadnezzar's dream and how that's impacting him. And 3 is Nebuchadnezzar flaunting his power. Nebuchadnezzar is hardly mentioned in chapter 1. And chapter 7 is still focusing on the beasts. The beasts are coming out of the sea, and that's interested in all world empires. Then we switch back to Hebrew in chapter 8, because all of a sudden those visions are no longer interested in all the world empires, like in chapter 7, but they start becoming narrowly focused on how Israel fits into all those nations. And so it seems to be where Daniel is the focus on one, that's Hebrew. Where the nations are the focus through 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6, and all the visions are focused on nations, is Aramaic in chapter 7. But then it switches back to Israel being the focal point in the visions in 8 through 12, and it goes back to Hebrew. There are some things that scholars are like, yeah, but, but they're so minor, that seems to be the main pattern. Which also emphasis, also helps you see what these visions are focusing on. The switch in language helps you understand what the focus is. And that's important when we start trying to figure out all that stuff when we get there. Outline is based on the first structure of these two parts. That's the introduction.